Pod. 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 Welcome back to another episode of Say Who Say Pod. He's Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel, and today we are joined by a very special guest. Uh, I, I figured with Washington 7-0 and to, to dissect what's happened so far and, and what might lie ahead, we needed to bring in the former sports editor of the Athens Messenger, <laughs> Tony Castricone. How you doing, Tony? Hey, we all have a print background somewhere, don't we? Um, yeah. Hey. Good. Uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Good to talk to you guys. It's did you know that, Danny? He's he's a, an ex newspaper guy. Uh, I I did not. Um, I don't know if that necessarily raises his esteem in my <laughs> eyes because I've already had a pretty high high opinion of Tony. But um, yeah, I guess I guess no. The fact that he's he's suffered along as an ink stained wretch. I think I think we we all can we all can identify with the lessons learned there. Dude, How long did you do that job? Everything. I mean, it went the whole nine yards. Normally. It was it was a daily that um, I think distributed about twelve thousand doorsteps every day, but it normally hit the doorsteps around noon. So I would work from about seven p.m. to six a.m. six days a week. That was while finishing my degree. People always think that the afternoon paper is an easier sort of gig and it's actually the exact opposite when i first started working at the seattle times it was still an afternoon paper the afternoon paper is an absolute bear because of how long you can wait to update things it's yeah the, it's, it's no joke that was that was a that murder that was absolute hell on people that had to produce those i i know tony does a lot of advanced prep work looking at, at each of Washington's opponents before they play them and, and diving into the stats and everything. Did you see anything about Arizona State's season so far that, that would suggest that they would have the at least the defensive performance that they did against Washington? Or were you as, as taken aback by that as I think everybody else was? So one of the things that leads me into some of the Um, advanced stats nerdery that um, I think I've kind of maybe become a little known for on Twitter and and those sort of things is that I just have a hard time finding the things that I find most interesting. And so I just crunch them myself. And um, then sometimes actually like the majority of the time it ends up being nothing. But once in a while I come across a nugget, I'm like, Oh, that's pretty cool. And so What I tried to do was I took the offensive averages for all of Arizona State's opponents, yards per game, yards per play, points per game, and then I compared that to what they did against the Sun Devils. And with the exception of USC, ASU held everybody far below their typical output. They held their opponents 78 yards per game below their their averages against all other opponents, and they held their opponents of a full yard per play below their average. And they had catastrophic turnover problems and had only secured one turnover all season long. And so Phil Steele does this cool thing where Phil Steele kind of says like, okay, turnovers are kind of sometimes luck. Obviously, sometimes you can force them, but sometimes they're luck. And so what Phil, Phil Steele will do in his magazine in the beginning every year is he will say, here are the worst turnover margin teams in the country 
from last year, and it can't possibly be that bad again this year. So project these teams to be better. And vice versa, here are the teams that benefited the most in turnover margin, and they might take a dip because they probably can't duplicate that. So they had a horrific turnover margin, which actually suggests like if the averages kind of come back into play, you could be in trouble. And they held everybody yards per play and yards per game way below their average. So I was like, uh, that plus a bye week plus an emotional letdown, I wouldn't have been surprised for Washington to put up 24, 28, something like that. No touchdowns, never saw that coming. Like, that was mind-blowing and um, really, really surprising. But, hey, they survived it. They got it done. It did survive it. And watching that game, um, I don't know if it was would, would have been worse to be at the stadium and sweat through it with other people that were sort of sharing that. But there wasn't ever any point where I was like, okay, they're definitely going to lose this because their Washington's defense did did play pretty well. When you consider the the turnover margin, it was it was a very strange game just because of you have four turnovers, you have a defense that that gave them gave gave Washington a chance, and that you always know that that offense is so explosive that if it just gets it doesn't take it long once it gets going to be able to get you back in or push you over the top in a game. Yeah, and I, I guess I'd maybe kind of turn the question back on you guys a little bit. Did you guys see anything um, ahead of this one that led you to believe that it would be Washington's defense that would be able to play the hero? Because, you know, Trent and Borgay kind of sliced them up a little bit last year. And I know it was against, you know, they, they had to put true freshmen and walk-ons in in the secondary and, you know, all that stuff. But I was really... Uh, I was really, really surprised that Washington's defense um, not only uh, scored the only touchdown of the game for Washington, but just kind of came up with play after play after play when it really needed to, to be the hero in this one. I was a little bit surprised, um, but man, Arizona State's offense has been bad this year, you know, like, and, but it is, it's, interesting though because one of their issues has been quarterback health and just not getting you know they they gave Jaden Rashada the keys maybe because Drew Pine was hurt maybe because they just thought Rashada had the most upside he gets hurt Pine's been banged up and they wind up like you said with the same starting quarterback who who did slice up the Huskies defense last year it's surprising that they were able to hold him to seven points having committed four turnovers I mean it just felt like you know, it didn't feel like Washington played a lot of that game with poor field position. It felt like that whole game was like played at midfield, basically. Um, you know, you, you knew Kenny Dillingham was going to give them some chances on fourth downs, and they, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's a big enough sample size the last two weeks to say, oh, this, this is a really good fourth down defense, or they just happen to make plays uh, on those downs. I don't know why they threw the ball, uh, at least that route, the way that they did on Mish Powell's pick six. I would have probably, yeah, I know they needed three yards, but I would have probably kept running it, um, with how, how effective Scataboo had been. Um, I will say, I felt like Danny loves that name. I did. That's it, it's such a it's such an old timey football name. That the way he looks, like there there might never be a player who plays like he sounds like his last name sounds quite like Scadaboo. He's a load. <laughs> He's huge. Plus, him and Conyers, 
like it really looks like they have two just galoots out there, just these enormous humans where you're like three guys hanging off of them, and you're like, he's not fast, but he's so big, it kind of seems unfair. They look like the juggernaut from X Men. That's what's what's interesting about this ASU team. Like, they have some individual skill where you watch their off. Like, you watch Conyers catch a pass, and you're like, oh my god! Like, that's a gigantic tight end. Obviously, like Elijah Badger has been a nice target for them. Scadaboo's numbers don't jump out at you. I think he was averaging like three point six yards a carry going into that game. But watch him play. Like, he's a very effective college running back. And then you know they had some D linemen who who wreaked some havoc. Their defensive numbers, like you said, Tony, like haven't been bad this year. Um, they're just not not quite there yet but i i will say like my biggest takeaway rewatching the game was that asu's defense didn't dominate washington's offense the way it felt like watching it live i mean it just felt like man they are they are wrecking everything they're doing up front and like absolutely their pressure rattled michael Penix jr it was totally effective I had to go back and watch myself to confirm that he actually really only did get hit one time in that game, and it was on the targeting penalty. Um, but they were they were just always around him and causing problems. But man, they were there was a four possession stretch there at the end of the first half and the first possession of the second half where they drive to the seven yard line and get a bad luck you know tipped interception. They drive into the red zone and, and settle for a field goal. They've got a, a first and ten where there's a, a bad, you know, missed pass, pass interference call that, that isn't made, and then they fumble on the next play, and um, they they just kind of kept making mistakes where they'd hit a couple. You kind of forget watching it live. Okay, yeah, they they moved the chains a couple times there. It kind of looked like they were starting to get it going, and then some self inflicted mistake. So I I don't know. I I do I do kind of buy the idea that they were only you know, one play away at a bunch of different junctures of kind of changing the complexion of things. But I thought, you know, ASU just was relentless and they never really did have an answer for that pressure coming up their, their interior line. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I've heard a lot is people asking, well, did ASU put a blueprint together for how to stymie Washington's offense? And I mean, maybe kind of, sort of, a little bit, if you have the pieces that ASU had and the ability to execute in a given situation, which is, you know, kind of take away the deep ball, which other teams have tried to do, but also do that by getting great penetration up the middle and then taking away the effectively the tight ends and the shallow crosses by getting your hands up and deflecting passes. And you you have to have guys that are capable of doing that against Washington's offensive line in order for that game plan to work. Because, you know, I, I mean, I've heard a lot of people say, well, gosh, you know, if Jalen McMillan could have played, I, I mean, I think he could have been another deep threat possibly. And then double deep threats gets really hard to defend. But, you know, as much as he's kind of used in, in the slot, I don't, I don't know who you could have put in those situations that Michael Penix could have got the ball to, because this is now over the last two weeks, seven PBUs by players that are listed as defensive linemen or linebacker. I mean, that's that's just an astonishing number. So I think, you know, uh, the, let's not forget that Washington on the offensive line, I know we're halfway through a new season, but they were trying to replace three sixth-year guys in the middle, right? Guard, center, guard. That's a big thing to replace. You plug in a sixth-year player at center to do that, and Mateo Mele, 
and he ends up going down with a season-ending injury. You lose depth in camp with guard Memelar going down with a season-ending injury. And then you take out Julius Bulow, and so, like, they are in a little bit of a, a body needing body situation on the offensive line. Scott Huff just said uh, here after practice moments ago that he thinks um, guys are starting to get a little more healthy and they're going to be about as healthy as they've been in a while heading into this game at Stanford. And I think that's going to be a crucial piece to the offensive success heading into November. I mean, the line is going to have to be able to hold up for them to compete for a title. Yeah, I I think you're totally right, Tony. And that question of how does the pass protection how are they able to protect really just right in the middle? Parker Brailsford uh, has done a great job in coming in to, to fill in for Melee, but with Bulow and and also Garen Hatchett having some some times where he was off the field on, on Saturday. I think that's that's really taxed him on Christian and on Montlake.com. You'd mentioned that, that maybe some of the injuries at wide receiver and on the interior line had caught up with him, but the, the blueprint part, we've seen teams that have kept everything in front of them, not let Washington get deep. And I think that Washington, especially this season, has been better against that. What we've now seen is that when you're able to do that and get some pressure up front, you can kind of disrupt some of the underneath game with, with the defensive front. Um, and, and it's going to be on Washington to protect Penix a little bit better because I know he didn't get hit, but he had to get rid of the ball really quick and he is great at that he's one of the best quarterbacks in the country at getting rid of the ball but he had he was feeling the pressure he he had to hurry up and they need to find a way to get him a little bit more time and and let a little bit more develop underneath to give him some more options there to keep that from being sort of here's here's how you slow down this offense i think if if you're confident that your offense can get a little something done against washington's defense then you do drop eight and you do kind of give the underneath and hope that that slows Washington down or at least gets you in a position where they have to score a touchdown on you in the red zone, which is not the easiest thing to do for a team that, that is so pass heavy, right? Um, you know, for, force them to, to get first and goal at the seven and maybe have to run the ball a couple of times to get across the goal line. But you're going to give up some points doing that. It's going to take a little longer if you execute properly. Um, you're going to force them to to string first downs together. You're going to force them to be patient. You're going to force Michael Penix Jr. to resist the urge to take that deep shot when it's not there, but you're still going to give up some points. I think ASU, like from a complimentary football perspective, probably knew like, no, we gotta, we gotta just go after him. You know, we can't, we can't sit back and let him have eight, nine, ten yard receptions. Like, we need to get them behind the chains. We need to force him to make some bad decisions. We need some turnovers, or we got no shot because our offense isn't good enough to really score on anybody. So, and it, and they got that done. I will say it's kind of for the the blueprint thing. It's kind of funny. Like, oh, is is the way to beat Washington to bring seven guys, you know, up up the middle and 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 hassle the quarterback? Like, that's kind of the way to beat anybody, right? And I think Oregon showed a little bit of that. That was the first hint of like, okay, they got after him, um, but they made him pay in a couple things too. And that was kind of what Ryan Grubb said on on Monday that, hey, they got matchups they wanted. Like, they will take a defense sending six guys to the quarterback. Uh, on a on a zero blitz and and take their chances man to man they just ne- didn't hit any of those yeah and I, I so the other thing is too you would love to believe that 
the one and oh mindset and the us versus us and the standard and all that stuff is always going to apply 100% of the time because I think internally that is what they're striving for. And yet, to think that like our program is immune to the things that all 18 to 22 year olds, you know, may historically in college football uh, show trend after trend, which is when you play a highly emotional game. The most physical game Washington will play this season until the postseason. I mean, well, I mean, Utah and Oregon State will also be extremely physical games, but the Oregon game was an extremely physical game. And once you get to the second half of the season, you aren't getting bigger, faster, stronger. You're doing a lot of pain management and just trying to get out there and feel good enough to go, you know, bang your body against someone else seven days later, right? And to do that against a team that has nothing to lose on a bye. When the whole stadium isn't going to feel the same way that it did the previous week. I mean, that was just like, that was quintessential college football, you know, tracking. And, and when you're, when you're a good program, you can still lose games like that. When you're a great program, you survive those games, you shake them off, and then you find ways to make adjustments, you learn from them and get better. And so it remains to be seen over the last five games whether or not Washington's made that leap from good to great. But I think surviving, no matter how you do, and, and in this case they did with the defense just and, and special teams, both both of those being absolutely unbelievable. You know, Grady Gross, three for three field goals, big deal. Career-long 47-yarder, huge deal. But also, Elijah Badger was number one in the Pac-12 in kickoff returns. He had one return for 14 yards. I, I thought Grady Gross was phenomenal. Um, so, hey, you know, they won. They're still top five. They're still 7-0. and and, and sometimes, no matter how ugly, nobody wants to have a game like that. Fans hate it. Players hate it. The assistant coaches hate it. I really felt, I, talking to some of the assistants, I almost felt like a sense of a little bit of embarrassment in in some of them just now. And, you know, I I think they just know what their standard is and what they want it to be every week and, and what it wasn't on Saturday against Arizona State. But I don't know. I, I expect a big bounce back game at Stanford, uh, a, a team who analytically is is about the worst defensively I've ever seen a Pac-12 football team. Like, it's right up there with, like, Cal when Sonny Dykes was the coach or Oregon State when Jonathan Smith took over. There was a year that Washington might have been up there with it. I don't want to say two two days, but Nick Holt comes to mind. There was a year. <laughs> there was a year in which I remember it being. No, but I, I also, before we move on to, to Stanford, let's also just acknowledge – that weird stuff happens in college football and for whatever mm-hmm. reason for about the past 20 years Arizona State has been the single biggest like look 12 straight losses to Oregon is the single most painful sports reality that I've experienced in my life it's awful and Washington has been more successful against Oregon over the past what 17 18 years than they have against Arizona State it makes no <laughs> sense at all absolutely no sense at all I was watching that game and I was remembering and I think it's 2017 it's the year after the college football semifinal game and they they play Arizona State they might have even been ranked number five like it, they, they were number been, that was the last time Washington was number five 
And I remember freaking Manny Wilkins hurtling a defender. <laughs> He's straight up. Their quarterback hurtled a dude. I was just like, what do you? Ah. Oh. So all of that, like the Washington being a better program. Not, weird stuff happens in college football. And with Washington, it tends to be with ASU for whatever reason. So in this in this weird era now of of all of the soon to be former Pac twelve schools as viable non conference options, do you never ever ever want to schedule ASU again, or do you try to get a home and home on the schedule to 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 at least give yourself a chance to remove that two thousand one game in in Tempe from being the last time that they beat Arizona State on the road. Or do you just do you just like accept the fact that the Washington Huskies are never going to win another football game in Tempe, Arizona? There's no reason to go back down there. <laughs> Zero, none. I don't. The bad juju, the forecom, all of those different things. There's no. There's no reason to go back down and play Arizona State. They can always go win a Fiesta Bowl, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's go, exactly right. Go win a Fiesta Bowl, but don't play Arizona State. Tony, you. Uh, we, we we mentioned Oregon. A little bit and I, I do want to ask just kind of what that day was like for you I know you you've got a you're, you're in the you know, the play-by-play guy has such a unique position where you have a job to do and it requires 110 percent of your focus and attention and I don't know that you're in a position where there are many points in that game where you can kind of sit back and really like oh my gosh we are watching an all-time classic football game here or or do you I mean what 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 is that uh what is it like calling a game that you kind of know as it's playing out is going to go down in history one way or the other so I wish I had the chance to do what you just said because I think like I would I would maybe try to think of something a little more profound or contextual to say in a situation, but instead I'm just like I'm so concerned with like who has the football and where is the football moving and trying to keep people up to date with the essential information so that a listener that doesn't have a picture to follow can try to put that picture together the best they possibly can. I would say there was a lot. Um, let me back up. There were there were many moments through the course of that game where, as exciting as it was, and as big of a game as we all knew it was, and, and we had hyped that thing up. I mean, the whole the whole country had hyped that thing up for weeks leading up, and still in my gut. You know, I'm kind of thinking to myself, this is a lot of fun, but it's not going to top last year's game. Because last year's game in Autzen Stadium, like, I mean, you can't top that, right? So there was, there's like a part of me that just kind of, that, that, that kind of still had that feeling in the back of my head. And I would say that feeling kind of stuck with me all the way up until, um, MJLA gets the TFL on third and two to force a fourth and three where it's like, uh oh, all of a sudden, like, what's about to happen here? Because then once Bo Nix throws the incompletion and Washington gets the ball back, and it's, you know, there's two and a half minutes, which is an eternity when you're 53 yards away. I think everybody in that stadium then sensed, like, wait a second, whatever happened last year was great. What we're about to see could be an all-timer. And and that's when like you kind of start to to snap out of the minutiae of of trying to paint the most articulate picture you possibly can. And then, you know, 
um, start to think about like the broader context of the moment. But I think I think the best play-by-play guys that that have ever done it, and, and some of my favorite guys to listen to, they have a great sense in any given. And this is really hard to do, and it's something I'm, I'm I feel like I'm weak at. And I'm trying to get better at. They have a great sense of of all the different lenses through which you can look at any given moment. Pick the right one, right? Because any play, you can look at that play through the lens of what that play is, or you can look at the play in the context of a drive, or you can look at that play in the context of a quarter, or a game, or a season, or the history of the program, or the history of the conference, or the history of the sport, right? Like, what lens are you going to look through any given moment at? And and so then, like, I just feel like when Michael Penix got the ball back at his own 47-yard line with 2.11 to go, you can put on those glasses of just, like, what we're what we're watching is something none of us are ever going to forget for the rest of our lives. This from 42. Good snap. Good hold. Kick is on the way. Kick is up. End over end kick. He's thrown down. He missed it. He missed it wide right. He missed it wide Does that does that does that kill you to hear your own voice? Are you one of these people who are like makes your skin crawl to hear your own voice? Because I, I don't I don't broadcast football for a living, but I I hate listening back like myself on a recording, for example, asking a question. So I I feel two things at the same time about it. One, I feel just an immense like warm feeling of gratitude that like that. That was uh, like I got to capture my experience of like just this amazing moment. This is this is it's like having um, having a keepsake of of what my authentic reaction was to one of the coolest moments ever. Like and and so in in that regard, um, I love it and I could listen to it over and over and over again. Then from the performance standpoint, which I want to be good at my craft. There's there's an element of me that just always hates the biggest place because you guys know as writers, like, you know how you're trying to get something in before deadline and then you, you hit send, right? And then maybe laying in bed at night or the next morning or whatever, you're like, ah, oh, I had a way better lead I could have used, right? Or, or this headline would have just been perfect for that and now it's out there in the world and it's gone and whatever. So it's that on steroids when you have literally 10 seconds to decide like what is it that you're going to say. So I will, every single time there's a big play, I will always end up feeling like, ah, I wish I would have said this instead. But there's just got to be a little bit level of acceptance of that is what it is. Like I tried to be in the moment, authentic, and and just I'm, I'm grateful that I got to be there. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about it from an execution standpoint, because what I hear and what I love about that and the reason I get goosebumps when I hear that, even when we just played it, is that it puts me in the moment that that occurred. And the uncertainty of when the kick went up and kind of the, I can hear in your voice sort of the, 
it's a makeable field goal. It's got the distance. He's put it up. We think it's good. Oh, it's moving. Oh, it's no good. And then that realization when it's no good that comes over it of like, oh, my God, it's over. Like, it's done. There's no more plays. This has happened. And you've got Cam. <laughs> and there's the the imperfections are kind of what make it so great for me. It's it, it's it's the same in covering the Seahawks of different things about the the replay of Richard Sherman's tip that sent him to the Super Bowl of these mm-hmm. these little natural moments that really weren't thought out they just kind of spontaneously happen um, are what make it so fun I I loved your call of it I love your call of Husky games Thank in you. general but like those those moments where you're really capturing. You're capturing what it's like to be there and to see it as much as it is sort of the, the technical execution of like allowing yourself to exist in that moment and, and embrace the stakes that were there for every Husky fan, because that's really what it felt like. If you're like, oh, God, I've seen that game before and he's seen Washington not win it. And mm-hmm. to see them come out on the, the the winning end of it on that missed field goal was just unbelievable. Thanks. I appreciate the kind words. Like I said, I mean, I will... I will never, and I, I've felt this every day since 2017 when I when I got here. I mean, I will never not feel a huge responsibility to try to just do the best job I, I possibly can for this fan base, which deserves it deserves Bob Rondo. It doesn't deserve me, but I, I think I'll always give everything I got to try to to live up to the standard. Um, and yet I'm always going to, in those moments, I'm always just going to kind of think like, gosh, you know, maybe, maybe someday after like 30 years, like a moment will happen where I've just seen it all and I've got it all internalized and like, yeah, I'm able to just nail it, say exactly the best thing that could be said in that moment. But in the meantime, I'm just feeling so unbelievably grateful and, and excited and like a kid, like, I mean, yeah, you know, I followed college football as my favorite sport since I was little, 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 really like, you know, was reading record books at a really, really young age. And I still feel that way about the sport. And I don't think I would have like kind of these. I sound like an, a crazy person, crazy person losing his mind reactions if I didn't still like tap into that little kid who just loves this stuff so much. Right. And I feel the same way about college basketball, too. It's, those are my two favorite sports. And so, you know, this ride is incredible. Um, and, and um, you know, it, it, I kind of I felt the same way when Mish Powell had the pick six last yeah. week. You know, I mean, there's just moments after moments. And championship seasons, special seasons, they've got moment after moment. And so I'm just trying to spend as much time as I can um, being around this team, learning the stories um, just meditating on how special this place is and, and what big moments would mean. And then and ju- just try to be present in the moment and whatever comes out, comes out. It's a very, that's very, very kind and humble of you to say that. And I love Bob Rondo, but I don't ever want to hear you say, I don't deserve to, 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 to have this job. Like I don't ever want to hear that again. Cause we're fortunate to have someone that takes, has the passion for the sport and the interest in the program and the, the dedication of their job. Really, really grateful for that. Um, thank you, Tony. Thanks, Danny. Appreciate it. I don't know what that route was supposed to do to Mish Powell. 
<laughs> I guess they must have seen something on tape that led them to believe that if the guy uh, made it look like he was running an out, Mish was gonna gonna go for the sideline. <laughs> when you watch the replay, it sure as hell looked like he threw it right to Mish Powell going the other way. Did you see his yeah, uh, I mean, I his think- explanation of, of that that play, like the pre snap read afterward? He said they'd motion that no. guy a bunch of times during the game and and never threw to him, never threw to him, never threw to him. And he was like, I think they were just kind of trying to lull me to sleep. And he said he, he, so his number seven, uh, was it Melquan Stovall? There's been a lot of Stovalls. Um, He kind of said like, oh, I could see like a little more determination in number seven's (laughs) eyes or something. Like he he, he motioned out there with a little more intent. So I thought, oh, I bet he's getting the ball this time. They need to work well, and then he said pace. when he he said when he faked the out route, he was like, "You're almost by the sideline. You're not going that way." So, yeah. <laughs> it was- I mean, so to me, like to me, Mish Pal, perfect example of great um, athleticism and skill developed through all the hard physical work, but just the football IQ to like in a moment and, and the study habits and doing all the mental work to step up and make that play because if he's just an elite athlete, Mish Powell isn't sensing any of that stuff. Right. But I think, I think it's the combination of the two that makes him, you know, he's a great student. I mean, he got offers from Ivy league schools, right? So, I mean, brilliant kid, really big time football player. Uh, next great Husky at the Husky back position at that nickel. Were I like you, the idea uh, were, that he was smart enough to get an offer to an Ivy League, but smart enough to know that he wanted to play big time football. So really <laughs> yeah. That's what uh, that's what he's always said. That he kind of he was looking for the best of both worlds, and and Washington was. It also happened to be you know five minute drive from where he went to high school. Um, doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt. Were, were either of you uh, keeping an eye on uh, Sakai Asoafoa on on that return? Because he he was running he was running right behind him and gave a little bit little bit of contact on Trenton Borgay. Uh, it looked like Borgay was was maybe he, he had his arms outstretched as he was on his back on the sideline, maybe looking for a call there. But I thought I was like, you know, I think he's got him beat. I don't know that you need to risk any any contact whatsoever on that play. It sure looked like Borgay was already starting to swim to me. Like we'd already seen the in motion when he, he, he maybe didn't need to touch him. I would have been furious if that call would have been made. I would have. I don't, I'm not saying I think it should have, but I was definitely. I was watching him. I'm like, the only way this gets screwed up is if he blocks him in the back, and it he he didn't not try to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you I know, think that's a good way to put it. He could he could have made that a little more clear cut than it was. Eliminated the possibility of that being flagged. Washington's already lost one pick six this year to a flag. So, That's true. You know, but I, hey, I mean, we hadn't had a defensive touchdown since 2019 before Eddie LaFoscio got his. And I think that's another team that, like, when you look at these really good Alabama teams, Michigan has four defensive touchdowns this year. Like, you know, you got to be a complete team. You know, I, I think Washington, guys, it, just to kind of wrap up the, the, part where we were talking about Washington's defense, I'd I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this because I have some stats that make Washington's defense look elite. And then I have some stats that make Washington's defense look 
absolutely terrible. Okay. And so what's fascinating is for the two extremes to exist within the same defense. And I think that you can then say some of them are stylistic or whatever, but, but, but get this about Washington's defense. Um, 10% of the running, 9.8% of the running plays against Washington's defense have gone for 10 yards or more. That's 14th in the country. Zero have gone 20 yards or more. That's first in the country. 6.03 yards per pass attempt. That's 17th. 10.48 yards per completion. That's 20th. Uh, 1.29 interceptions per game. That's 12th in the country. 18.9 points per game. That's 23rd in the country. All of that screams your defense is very, very good. Mm -hmm. Right? Same defense right here. 6.78 plays per possession. That is last in college football. Uh, Zero fumbles forced. That is tied with Stanford for last in college football. Uh, 7.28% negative play rate. That's 131st of 133 teams. 2.4% sack rate. That's 133rd in the country. And 9.78 TFL rate on sack-adjusted rushing attempts. That's 89th in the country. So you've got, like... All this evidence, and, and this is where it's going to be interesting when you bring in the CFP committee. Like, how are they going to evaluate Washington's defense? Because you can make a case, and people certainly will. Florida State fans will certainly make the case. Oregon fans will make the case. Washington's defense isn't that good. And there are a lot of ways you can make the case that Washington's defense is every bit as good as you would want a championship defense to be. It's a very strange unit. And we had talked about this last week in your those stats put a finer point on it, which is that Washington doesn't have a good run defense if you're considering average yards per carry, but it has a very good run defense if you're considering the number of big plays. Mm-hmm. It's at, if it is giving up a lot of singles and not many extra base hits. And I don't know how to explain either why that's happening or whether that is good or bad. It's an extreme. I can't recall a, a defense that sort of fits this characteristic in which it allows consistent, moderate gains, has a hard time forcing punts and getting stops, is great on fourth down. I, 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 is great on fourth down. And I don't know what to make of it. It's, it's, it's really hard. And now they're going to go in... USC's obviously got a ton of playmakers, but Utah and, and Oregon State are both very, very physical physical teams that are going to want to want to run the ball. And I have a really hard time of understanding or anticipating how I think Washington is going to match up with that because I've never seen anything like this before. Well, when you talk about yards per carry allowed, there was a four-game stretch there. Michigan State, Cal, Arizona, Oregon. Over that four-game stretch, you take all the stuff, all the running plays combined, Washington held those four opponents 1.8 yards per rush below their season average. Oh, interesting. So they played four straight teams that are really good at running the football, have really high yards per carry already this season, and they held them all way below. Then against Arizona State, inexplicably, Arizona State was like the worst rushing offense in the country, and they ran for like 4.8 yards a carry. But Washington had been better than, than, way better than average 
against those four specific teams in a row. What do you think, so, Christian? Do you think this I, defense is good? Well, first of all, I think I think Tony's in my Google documents because I'm I'm writing about this uh, on Thursday, <laughs> and I I may, I may well uh, crib some of those those metrics. I've been looking at it, and I, I would volunteer another few. So Washington is up to 18th in FBS in uh, defensive EPA per pass after spending last year down in the like low 120s, 130s. Um, they're 41st in overall defensive EPA, and they're 91st in defensive uh, EPA per rush. So they're they're quite efficient against the pass. You kind of like you mentioned the run defense, but then you know that's that only paints part of the picture, right? Um, I, I think somebody said yesterday, maybe it was Chuck Morrell, or on on Monday, excuse me, maybe it was Chuck Morrell, but. I think team wide, they they have this like whatever it takes attitude where they're a little less fixated on the stats and the production mm-hmm. and like you mentioned, you know the the one number nobody would have guessed going into this year is that they'd be last in FBS in sack rate. Sack rate. I mean that's that's crazy, but the coaching staff it will stand on a table and say Braylon Trice and Zion Tupuola Fatui are absolutely affecting the game. Watch. What happens when Braylon Trice gets a hit on a guy and how panicked he is later in the game? You know, and, and mm-hmm. I think Z, talking to ZTF on Tuesday, he kind of said, you know, there was, a, there was a play against Oregon where, you know, I, I beat my guy off the edge and like Nick's tucked it immediately. And that just, that, that blew up the play. He was no longer looking downfield. So he, I think, it, you know, you can parse out how much of that is coach speak, and, but behind closed doors, they're like, oh, my God, Like we really only have this many sacks. How are we not getting to the quarterback? And how much of it is legit? Just like, hey, if, if they're going to get rid of the ball immediately and not take shots downfield and not stand in the pocket, we're not going to get sacks, but that's going to help our defense and that's going to help the team win. And I think that's what they care about more than some of these other, you know, their, their tackling has been bad. It needs to improve. They missed so many against Oregon and Arizona State. And it's funny, I, I think, you know, it, it's glaring. And so it's a bigger takeaway for some coming out of ASU than it is for me, just because, like, they gave up seven points and 4.4 yards per play, and they scored as many points as ASU's offense did. So, you know, I, I, I think I, I get it, though. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a glaring issue, and, and, you know, it's frustrating to, to watch what should be a two-yard gain turn into an eight-yard gain, and it's going to cost them maybe against some teams that that have better running backs and more dynamic offenses. But I don't know. Like I think, I think this defense is way closer to the coaching staff's ideal of, you know, complementary football and creating turnovers to give advantageous field position to the offense and um they, they they affect the ball more in the secondary like to me that's the key their secondary is so much better their pass defense is so much better jabbar muhammad is probably the most underrated player on the team i mean in terms of the attention he gets versus how valuable he is and shoring up what was a, a major weakness for them last year so like that's that's kind of what i'm addressing on thursday right like is it a good defense is it you know they're certainly better, and I I think that they they help the team win, which is um, you know, that maybe doesn't get as much attention as some of the stats do. Yeah, and and Christian, I don't know how much you put into this with all the different types of coaches you've been around in your career, and well, both of you for that matter. But like, 
uh, Christians around the the Husky assistants, like you don't get a sense, like because because body language and the way that these guys talk about themselves and their team, like sometimes you hear the words in the quote, but then you're also kind of watching the way that these things are delivered. Are they delivered in an agitated way? Whatever. I don't get the sense for a second that Kalen DeBoer, William Inge, or Chuck Morrell are worried that like their defense is just, is, is this huge liability. Like there, there's nothing about the way they talk about these guys, the way that they carry themselves when, when they answer these questions that leads you to believe that. And I mean, like Danny was saying earlier, weird things happen in college football. If if this was played in a way like kind of the NFL, where I think you you see much more uniformity in the way that games are played throughout the course of a season, stats can really I think uh, say say a little bit more. But like sack rate is drastically affected by the fact that Washington has faced the 12th highest percentage of pass plays in the country this year. They're facing a lot of pass plays, right? And so the fact that they're not getting home with way more pass attempts means their sack rate is going to be lower. And yet, you know, if teams are, they come in with this game plan that they're just going to pepper it out, um, that leads to a really low yards per pass attempt, which is 17th, right? So, it's the way that and, – and here's another one, and this will be my last, like, deep dive here, but explosive passes allowed. This is how you can just, again, carve things the exact same stat two different ways. Ten-yard pass plays allowed. If you look just at raw ten-yard pass plays, Washington gives up 9.29 of those a game. That's 93rd in the country. That doesn't sound that good. If you look at percentage of pass plays that go 10-plus yards – it's only 22%. That's 16th in the country. So they're facing a ton of pass plays. They're doing a really good job at keeping the vast majority of those in front of them. And they're not very explosive. Now, the explosives happen because over the course of time, yeah, explosive plays happen. But I just think if you, if you put all the stuff on the scale, I think a lot of teams, including the 2022 Huskies, would take this defense in a heartbeat. And, and, you know, they, they won the game against Arizona State on Saturday, and, and we'll see how they do here down the stretch. It's really going to be a tough November. They might go undefeated with this defense in 2022. I mean, they definitely beat Arizona State, right? <laughs> so, I don't yeah. know, man. Weird stuff happens against Arizona State. You're <laughs> yeah, not going to get can, me to say that anything. They, like, oh, they probably beat Arizona State. No. They would have found a devil a way on their lose. helmet. They've made some sort of deal with Lucifer. I will say it's it's a good point Tony makes on uh, on the body language thing. Like Chuck Morrell is is just no bones about it. Braylon Trice and ZTF are playing really well and affecting the game, and it's it it does not sound like excuse making or spin coming from him. Um, you know he's he's very direct about uh, how well he thinks the edge rushers are playing, in spite of what some of the sack numbers say. So I will say another uh, the the last metric I'll pull out. Tony, Danny, or are you guys into stop rate at all? Yeah, I like stop rate. Okay, I'd be interested to hear what their stop rate is. Mm-hmm. They're 24th in FBS in really? stop rate as of this week. Uh, behind only... How do you calculate stop rate? Uh, 
it is simply let me get the exact because Max Olson at the Athletic does a good job. Uh, it's the percentage of a defense's drives that end in punts, turnovers, or a turnover on downs. So they so basically they did they score or not? Yeah, did the offense score or not? And so they're twenty fourth in FBS um, within the Pac twelve. Uh, UCLA is fourth nationally. Utah is ninth. And then Washington is third in the league in stop rate. Um, well above Oregon at this point, by the way. Oregon now down to 40th. Yeah, some of that, some of that's boosted by the fourth down performance that they're fourth down. They've, they've gotten, they've gotten some fourth down stops. But, like you said, they haven't forced a fumble. Like Washington hasn't forced a fumble yet this season. And that's probably something that's going to change because I am a firm subscriber to Tony's theory that Yes, a defense has some impact on turnovers, but not nearly as much as we typically attribute it to it. And the number one thing that I think that you look for in terms of forecasting going forward, either in a season or from one season to the next, is unsustainable turnover margins, either negative or positive, in which you say, like, hey, that's probably not going to happen again. Um, And for Washington, I would say that the second half of the season, I would expect they end up getting more turnovers have more takeaways than they have in the first half just just because of that these unsustainable turnover margin is is that lincoln riley's music i hear (laughs) (laughs) dude he went nuts did you guys watch that game dude i saw like bits and pieces of it in the press box crazy on the sidelines like really and I, I didn't watch every game of his at Oklahoma. I can't remember seeing him that agitated on a sideline before. And that was that was before things re- even really fully went sideways for him in the game. Um, do we want few, to... There are a few things I like more than watching a discombobulated USC team. Like, they really are. Like, it is right up there. Just really high things that make my day. Do we want to cut Tony in on our uh, our weekly conversation that is worth a conversation it is worth a conversation are you familiar with with ian mcfarland our steely-eyed uh sales assassin tony i am through say who say pod he's excellent he's asking great questions he's starting great conversations (laughs) he is starting great conversations and you could you can check in with him at ipmcfarland.com but this week this week he doesn't have a question so much as a confession Guys, last week I was on asking who you wanted to see in the conference title game. But um, I've got to come clean. That's not all I did. I um, I also looked at hotels for the conference title game. And I went further. I, I looked at hotels for the national semifinals and the national title game, too. I'm sorry. I did this. <laughs> Saturday night was entirely my fault. You, the listening audience, every Husky fan, none of you deserved that. I did. And believe me, I, you know, I, I lost enough years off my life to to own it, but I, I still feel terribly. So the, this week's question is is is, is pretty straightforward. Um, which Husky players need to have a career game to ensure a one-point victory against Stanford? That's all I want. That's all I want. All I'm asking for is a win. Now, I'm completely lying, and my heart will fully implode 
if that happens. But on the record, all I am asking for is a one point win. What needs to happen for one of the best offenses in America to score enough points against one of the worst defenses in Power Five history to ensure a one point victory? That's that's all I'm looking for. Please help. Now, I do I do want to make it clear because of some events that have happened around the country that I don't want anybody going and looking at Ian's Venmo history or trying to figure out if he's bought <laughs> tickets to other teams games. <laughs> we do not we do not have a this was not a scouting situation. He was strictly looking for his own self-interest at the possibilities of a of a conference title game, perhaps a, a national semifinal. There was no we don't have a Connor Stallion situation. Yeah, if, if uh if Connor Stallions sponsored this podcast, the confession would be I uh I looked at uh ticket prices in Eugene <laughs> and in Salt Lake City and at uh, Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. And uh, looked at <laughs> hotel <laughs> prices in Las Vegas and Pasadena and Houston and had some friends uh, buy tickets in Palo Alto. And uh, hold on, there's another page here. When I saw that people had open, sort of like crowdsourced Connor The Venmo Stallions. thing's so funny. Venmo. <laughs> 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 I was like, that's something SMU did not have to worry about in 1983. <laughs> was, was the Venmo receipts for t-shirts. <laughs> I will say, Ian Ian brings up a uh, a point that I think is worth keeping in mind. Like, it's, it's easy to look at the ASU result and think, well, gosh, they... they they sure struggle at Stanford historically too here in this modern era. Something you know, this is another. It's like right, Cal, ASU, and at Stanford, weird, weird stuff happens uh, against those three opponents in certain venues. Stanford is a much different team than ASU. Um, I still have them ahead of Arizona State in my power rankings because wins do matter. They did beat Colorado. Arizona State did not. Arizona State <laughs> is still winless in conference play. I think they're going to get one. I still think they're going to get one, but. Um, I don't think Stanford has the athletes to do to Washington what Arizona State did. What do you guys think? Well, I, I would just tell Ian just to work on his one and zero mindset a little bit. Um, <laughs> that that can do wonders for you. Um, but at the same time, I understand last minute ticket prices aren't what you want to deal with either. I, I'd say <clears throat> I feel the same way, um, Christian. I mean, I think there's nothing okay. So when you look at strengths and weaknesses of teams. We said very early in this podcast that you could see on paper pretty pretty clearly ASU had a strong defense that they brought into Seattle. Um, and so that could have, in this very unique situation, caused problems to the Husky offense. I don't see anything that suggests Stanford defensively is going to cause problems to this Husky offense. Now, offensively... Now, again... They almost beat Arizona, 
when Jaden Delora was still the quarterback. And so if you go out and turn the football over and you allow them to kind of try, and we talked about it earlier, Washington is last in the country with allowing the most plays per possession. So if you allow Stanford to do what they did in 2019, where it's like, you know, it's a two possession first half or some of the things that historically have happened when they had David Shaw as the head coach, then yeah, like you can find yourself in the third or fourth quarter looking at the scoreboard like what the hell's going on. I, I just don't foresee that being an issue today. I mean, I, or this week, I just think that Washington is refocused. They're going to have exactly the kind of team that they should be able to go out and execute if they take care of themselves. And and I would expect Washington to put up a lot of points in this game. Yeah, Washington. As long as Washington doesn't commit more than four turnovers, they're going to win this game. As long as they cap it, right at four. Four's, four's the ceiling. That's the most that can be allowed. Um, I, I'm interested to see what they're going to put together at Stanford. I, I think he's a pretty good coach, but I think the massive transition they have in personnel from what David Shaw wanted to do on offense and what they're trying to do I I think that that is certainly going to work in Washington's favor here I think that Washington is Washington is most vulnerable against a team that is willing to minimize the number of possessions in a game and really just try to slog it out and that's not there's no indication that Stanford either wants to or is capable of playing that kind of football game, and and I, I do th- I do think Washington will put up points unless it continues to to turn the ball over. Uh, well, we're well. I've got the EPA rankings pulled up here. CFB hyphen graphs dot com. By the way, um, it's a, a fun resource for college EPA. Uh, Stanford is dead last in FBS in uh, defensive EPA per pass. Arizona State is thirtieth. So. Bit of a gulf between uh, those two teams' capabilities of defending the pass. I don't know. I always feel like uh, a, a clearly overmatched opponent when you're talking about an off- Washington's offense against an opposing defense, especially after how poorly they ran the ball last week. I, I feel like it's an opportunity to kind of get that established again and, you know, give kind of challenge your offensive line. Okay, you, if you're not what you put on tape last week, prove it this week. Go out and physically dominate a team that you should physically dominate. Let Dylan Johnson get behind you guys and run for 100 yards and, and prove that last week was an aberration. Um, in reality, I don't know that there's really anything to prove against Stanford other than you're not going to have a no-show. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a game they should win easily, Like if, if we're being very honest about it. But it is on grass, Christian. <laughs> <laughs> no, see, we those... Answered- de- we answered that that boogeyman at at Michigan State, right? Like that was yeah, those, that was one of the things that we we solved. Those demons have been have been exercised. Washington is built for the natural grass. Well, I don't know about built for it, but they're 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 capable of playing on it. They prefer to, in fact. Yeah, man, there's a huge fight in the NFL right now. All the players want them to put natural grass in everywhere, and all the owners are like, oh, it's going to be so expensive. It's a, it, that, that discussion is an interesting one to me. <clears throat> hey, I know it's not the, the main topic, but I'm just curious to see the future of Stanford football. I mean, with the transfer portal, incredibly tough for them to, to get the kind of athletes to contend. They're moving to the ACC, which is just... I, 
Yeah. And uh, I just, I, I'm, you know, they've got this new head coach who is clearly capable based on what he did at Sacramento State yep. and is interested in being in the Bay Area based on his whole career. But, I, I mean, what a what a fascinating thing to kind of just keep an eye on where that whole thing goes. Yeah. Um, I Part of me thinks they'll just continue to recruit the same because there will always be like a handful of four-star guys who want to go to Stanford, who want to attend Stanford and they recruit nationally. Yes. It's, it's this weird little niche where like your brand, your, your brand academically is so strong that you can go to North Carolina or Florida or Kansas or, you know, whatever it is and find like a four-star athlete who, if, you were any other school on the West Coast, they have no interest whatsoever. But because you're Stanford, they want to go to Stanford. And so, like, they'll, they'll just get a handful. I, I think they'll continue to get a handful of those guys every year. Um, but the, the portal is a big issue, right? NIL is a big issue. Um, the guys who, even the guys who maybe want to go to Stanford might feel like they can't because they're leaving money on the table. If they don't take this offer from this other school that, yeah, okay, the, the degree from there is not going to be as impressive, but I can make six figures every year I'm in college if I go do that. Um, so I, I think if you're Stanford, you're counting on those guys still valuing the degree, which I, th- I think some of them will. I do. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see, like, institutionally, how much support is there going to be from the academic side of things and from I not everyone calls it upper campus. Maybe that's just a Washington thing, but upper campus essentially at Stanford, you know, are they are they going to try to make it work with the portal? Are they going to, you know, with their messaging and stuff, throw everything behind NIL? I, I don't know um, that travels. You know, that's kind of my my thing with the the national recruiting. I think that works to their advantage a little bit because you're not fully relying on recruiting classes full of West Coast guys who are counting on their families being able to come to every or not not have to fly too far for every game. I think those a lot of those guys already come from other parts of the country where, you know, it's it's not really going to be any different. So maybe maybe that helps offset it a little bit. I think NIL is probably the biggest issue as opposed to the geography. And part of that comes, there's tension at a lot of places between so-called upper campus and athletics and feelings over the years that college sports have become too professionalized. Stanford is at a different level of that. Like, you have a significant portion of the administration that I firmly believe is fine with all of the Olympic sports playing intercollegiate sports, but would prefer that there's not football. There's actually like a chunk of their administration that feels that way. And now when you get into a question of how do you create NIL opportunities and the way that people contribute to doing that, I, I think that's, I think that's going to be a real challenge for them. Um, Dave Wyman, who I worked with for a number of years, went to Stanford. <laughs> he always talked like Dave, Dave loved his time there and loved Stanford, but he describes an institutional bias against speed. <laughs> <laughs> And Dave could actually run pretty well. Like Dave was actually, and he also talked about one time they were going on on the bus to a game, and he's starting to get pumped up, and he looks over and he sees a guy sitting there in his helmet reading a biology book. <laughs> he wanted to be like, 
can you do that later? <laughs> like, we're getting ready to kick someone's ass here. Like, I need you to stop looking on the, the properties of photosynthesis. So these are some of the hurdles that you, you might deal with at Stanford that you don't have to deal with at other schools. Maybe that's what, uh, maybe that's what got him fired up. Like, uh, Daniel Bridge Gad, the, uh, the former Washington quarterback who's now a stand-up comedian. He said in high school, like, before games, he said he would, he would listen to stand-up comedy on his headphones <laughs> rather than music or something. So whatever, whatever, uh, whatever, whatever gets, gets you going, you going whatever, whatever fires you up. <laughs> do we, uh, do we also want to invite Tony to, uh, take a crack at, at, at picking some PAC 12 games? Maybe he'll do better than, uh, than I did last week. He had a rough well, week. Y- you know what I was going to say was maybe pulling a herb street and being like, well, you know, I got to call games. Maybe I shouldn't go ahead and, and, and make a pick, but, but maybe I'll throw a, a note or two out about each of these just as, as things to consider when you're, you're getting ready for your Saturday. Yeah, Tony's yeah. got every stat in the history of football pulled up on his laptop screen in front of him, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. so. Well, last week, Christian, uh, you did, as you mentioned, you had a bit of a difficult week. You did get the Washington-Arizona State game right, taking Arizona. Washington favored by 26.5. They did not win by 26.5 points. But uh, Stanford-Oregon... Oregon failed to cover. Stanford and USC ended up uh, losing both of those games, whereas I went 3-1. and one. Uh, This week... The headline matchup is Oregon at Utah. Oregon favored by six and a half points. Yeah, I'm I'm done betting against Kyle Whittingham. I'm taking Utah. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't decided yet if I'll take them straight up, but I, I think they will cover six and a half at home. All that momentum. Uh, they just went out and found some defensive starter who's the best running back in the history of college football now, uh, like they do, and, and, and away they go. That was absolutely wild. Um it's crazy to think about how good they've been and not having Cam Rice. It's it's one of the more unexpected. And I think I think Utah probably, given everything, should have been a little bit more transparent about when he was expected to play than they have been. But it's also kind of worked out for their team because you've kind of felt like if they keep surviving eventually he'll come back and man they've only lost one game it's really really remarkable one thing about utah is i i think that huge win against usc has people believing in the utes again which understandably i mean it's it's hard to to put down kyle whittingham and what he's done in utah but I mean, this is the offensive performances for Utah so far this year. 24 against Florida, 20 against Baylor, 31 against Weber State, 14 against UCLA. One of those was a pick six. Seven points in Corvallis against Oregon State. Now, the last two weeks, 34 against Cal, 34 against USC, including a big win in the Coliseum. But, guys, Cal's defense is not what it has been. And USC does not have a very good defense. So like I'm still I'm still kind of waiting to see how Utah offensively performs against a good defense and I think Oregon has a really good defense. Um, so I they just haven't done that yet against that type of team. Salt Lake City is an incredibly tough place to play. They defend home uh, turf pretty well, but Utah still has to do something it hasn't done this year, which is score the ball against a good defense. Yeah. I think I think Oregon's going to cover, but I'm picking Utah because I don't want any part of me to be happy if Oregon does. <laughs> that's that's my rationale. Completely, completely going with the with, with the heart here. USC at California, SC favored by eleven. 
Yeah, that. I also don't want to bet on USC again. <laughs> come on, come on. <laughs> Did you say eleven? Eleven. Okay. When I looked at it, it was ten and a half. That half point. Uh, that's oh, the half point me. makes a difference too. I'm taking Cal. They're coming <laughs> off a bye. They're playing at home. Maybe Justin Wilcox smells some blood in the water. Um, we're going to ignore the fact that Cal is not good at anything, and. Uh, and, and, and roll with the Golden Bears to at least cover that against a USC team that, gosh, what, what kind of effort level are we going to see from them? It's going to be fantastic, man. There is nothing There is nothing like the sight of a discombobulated USC program. Like, there really, there really isn't, because this mixture of disbelief and sort of the feeling that they've been betrayed and they're underachieving and i'm like this is the story of you guys for the majority of the past 30 years like that that's this is really this is not out of the ordinary for what you guys normally do maybe you had a little more buzz and you had a heisman trophy winner but this is not this is not an out of the ordinary usc season so far yeah we just got done talking about cal and in usc a little bit and i kind of look at cal as like a team i can't find any trends with like, I, I kind of just don't know when they're going to show up and when they're not. I mean, 58 against North Texas, 10 against Auburn, you know, uh, 32 against Washington, although most of that came in the fourth quarter. They did beat Arizona State. They scored 40 on the Oregon State defense, mm-hmm. but lost 52 to 40. And then, you know, um, only put up 14 against Utah. So Cal's a team that I just I, I still kind of don't know what they are. They don't seem to be what they have been. Um, and USC for now, it, it still got the Heisman, the reigning Heisman Trophy winner. I just, I'm curious from a culture standpoint how USC responds to having lost two in a row when they thought they were competing for national championship. That's that's really to me the piece. Like if they're motivated, they shouldn't have a problem. You wouldn't think. No, uh, I'm taking USC because of the the reason you can't figure out who Cal is. Tony is because of Cal's uh, hippified history of being nonconformist, and it mitigates against <laughs> sustained football success. Washington at Stanford. Uh, Huskies, stop me if this sounds familiar, favored by 26 and a half. Yeah, um, Washington, easy. I think they I think they show up. I think they're motivated. I think they'll, uh, last week's result installed a, a chip on their shoulder that will encourage them to score many points early and uh, don't underestimate the fact that the when when a heavy road favorite when when it's the road team that's heavily favored there's only so much of their bench they can empty because they can't travel that many guys so you're talking about like second and second and a half string rather than like third and fourth string so the the garbage time component is a little uh, a little nullified yeah you be careful man lincoln riley's going to pull your press pass for using terms like garbage time Garbage, garbage, garbage time. He doesn't like those. He doesn't like those. Uh, my stat on that is the Huskies are traveling 74 players. So um, that's that's what I have to offer there. And they played 80 at home against Colorado last year. So uh, Christian's theory checks out. Yeah, I'm going to take, take UW to cover. Here is, it's not the weirdest line of the week, but it's the weirdest line in terms of who's favored versus the national attention. Colorado at UCLA. UCLA is giving 17 in this game. Hmm. So just just as far as a nugget on this, every time you look at a, 
a stat that Washington is really good at defensively, UCLA is very good in that same thing. Um, they're not giving up the big plays. They are tied with Washington for the Pac-12 lead in interceptions. You know, they've got Liatu Latu, who's who's continuing to just be a, a wrecking ball on that defensive line. Uh, UCLA is the type of defense that would probably give Colorado some issues. Man, 17. 17. We don't know who UCLA's quarterback is. Nope. Oh, Ethan Garbers looked pretty good. Uh, got has. the job done at least last week. Um, he has. Against, against Stanford. Um, Colorado had a, had a week off as well. Coach Prime getting an extra week to get him, get him up, and, up and going. Yeah, I don't like uh, I don't like picking a UCLA team to cover that big of a spread against a team coming off a bye. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take Colorado to cover, but I I agree. Um, we could see a double digit sack total for UCLA in this game. Yeah, our our picks are looking too similar so far. So I'm taking UCLA just for a little bit of variety. <laughs> I did. I took the big. I took the big dog against UCLA last week, and it backfired extremely. So <laughs> you did do that. Uh, Washington State at Arizona State. Cougs have run into a bit of a rough patch. The Sun Devils, with their one win over Southern Utah, but coming off a very spirited performance on Montlake, uh, Cougs favored by six in this one. Man. That's so thin. the Cougs, the Cougs started off four zero and have dropped three three straight. I don't have the historic background on them that you guys might, but like, is that Pacific Northwest team struggling in Tempe limited to Washington, or is that historically a, a tough place for Washington State as well? It's not as tough for the Cougs as it has been for Washington, but it's it's not that's not been one of the more favorable matchups for the Cougs. The Cougs the Cougs tend to thrive against Oregon weirdly. If if ASU is like really feeling itself on the pressure, um, uh, that's a pretty good matchup against Wazoo's offensive line. It's had a lot of a lot of trouble um, protecting Cam Ward, at least against UCLA and Arizona. It did, but Cam Ward uh, just had a huge game at Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Wazoo was never really like in in that game in the second half, but he threw for four hundred and forty yards or something and over nine per attempt. So. I uh, I don't know. It's been a you know three game losing streak for Wazoo, kind of a weird weird game plan against Arizona, and it's just kind of I, I think they bounce back here. I think that you know, and this starts a stretch for them of four games, four very winnable games. Um, I think they I think they get it done, and I think they cover. I, I it's hard to see Arizona State scoring enough on Wazoo's defense um, to. To, to count on the Sun Devils to cover a touchdown. You don't believe in Scatapoo? See, I do. If, if, we're, if we're talking about individual players on ASU's roster, I believe it. Cam Scatapoo is one of them. Scatapoo? A little bit. Uh, go, to, go to Conyers, the big giant human. I'm going to take the... I'm, I'm take, taking Sparky here. I think that, I think that Arizona State... It, it's interesting because I would say that I think Dillingham's done a fairly good job because I think they've started to play better over the course of the season, but the results have not necessarily borne that out. But I do think that they were, I thought they were clearly the worst team in the conference when the season started. And now I would describe them as potentially frisky. I think they're a potentially frisky Arizona State team. The uh, yeah, I describe them as feisty myself. <laughs> yeah, the, the binary result hasn't been there the last four games. But the 
I mean, just the result in general has been way, way better, way more competitive. Yeah, and then the last game uh, on the Pac-12 docket is Oregon State at Arizona. The Beavs giving three and a half on the road. Yeah, I like the Beavs. I know Arizona will be a popular pick in this game. Um, they've, you could argue that their arrow, their trend line has ascended in a way that maybe no other conference teams has over the last three or four weeks, uh, with the exception of like Utah. Um, Noah Fafita looks like kind of the, the answer at quarterback, although Jaden Delora was healthy enough to take the final kneel downs in Pullman two weeks ago, and then they got a week off, so. You know, Jed Fish has kind of got that awkward situation of like, is is Delora going to get Wally pipped here? But um, they've been so good defensively; it's amazing, amazing how much better they are defensively. But uh, I don't know, man. I it, there's one coach, two coaches in this league who just kind of find a way. It's Kyle Whittingham and Jonathan Smith, and you know, three and a half. I I think Oregon State can feel how close it is to getting into that Pac-12 championship game is not going to take its eye off the ball, knows that this is going to be a really stiff challenge. I assume it'll be a sellout, if not close. Should be a fun atmosphere, but I don't know. I think Oregon State's built to, to take on that challenge and win, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the Beavers. Tony, I think I'm not sure if, if you're aware of this, but I've been a, a very firm uh, Jed Fish critic. Yeah. Come around. <laughs> I've completely come around. He was an assistant coach on the Seahawks staff way back when Pete Carroll was first getting going, and I've been really impressed about what he's put together. What do you see in this game? I I think Jed Fish has been phenomenal. I mean, he is doing the same thing Kalen DeBoer is doing at Washington with uh, a lot fewer resources and starting from a way deeper pit. So I think it's taking him a little more time, but I think he's really something to contend with. Interesting note about this game, like Arizona offensively plays low possession games, and so does Oregon State. So mistakes are going to be maybe amplified if this is if this falls the trend and continues to be a low possession game. Um, that turnover here or there could could mean a lot more in a game like this. Um, Arizona had the number one most explosive run game in the country a year ago. It's not quite as explosive this year. Arizona's offense is it's 46th in percentage of runs that go 10 yards or more. Oregon State actually is a little suspect there. They're 112th defensively in that metric. Arizona at home, I, I, I think that's going to be a tough one for Jonathan Smith, a tricky, tough one, because everybody's talking about the path that they have. And it is a good path to get to week, what what would that be, week 12, which would be the game against us, and then week 13 they've got Oregon. But this is, this is probably going to be the trickiest one for them, I think. I'm going with the fishes, the fighting fishes. I'm a firm believer in the fighting fishes, even against uh, Oregon State. And I have a lot of affection for the, for the beefs. But, uh, yeah, I think, I think down there I'll be interested to see what the atmosphere is like, too. Tony, this has been fun, man. Thanks for joining us. Fun for me, too. Thanks for the invite. Uh, anytime. Happy to do it. Tune in to Tony Castricone. He's he's come a long way since his days uh, yelling at reporters for blowing deadline and editing copy, <laughs> putting together the agate page. I was the only reporter. I, no, I had one reporter. I had one reporter <laughs> at the Fed Hawk versus Trimble High School game. 
Tune into Tony. Tune into the game uh, Saturday. Nice little favorable late afternoon kickoff. Not too bad. Get out of we there. We should be home by about 2 a.m., 1, 1.30 a.m. It's manageable. We'll talk to you next week.